terrorist attacks 20 years ago on the morning of September 11th, 2001, launched us further into the Middle East than we had ever been before, warring with Iraq, Afghanistan, desperately trying to secure ourselves from future terrorist attacks. Our tenure there has been nothing short of controversial. A lack of transparency from our government and military leaders and a seemingly endless quest fighting a war with virtually no public support. Now, 20 years later, we've withdrawn ourselves from Afghanistan effectively ending the conflict. It won't be breaking news to say it was a shit show. But now what? What do we do with these last 20 years? The Taliban has since taken over the entire nation after the Afghan National Army failed to fight back, and U.S. officials seem to be willing to work with the Taliban to bring home any Americans left behind. But there's a lot more going on. How does a veteran who served there process this loss? How can we learn from our actions in the Middle East? And is this it for Afghanistan? Or is there an optimistic future where you know, things work out in the end? In this special two-part episode, I discuss not only the war in Afghanistan, but also the ethics and obligations surrounding our nation's foreign involvement. Joining me to discuss these important issues are the amazing veterans behind both the Panjway podcast and the Boardwalk podcast. They've been helping me sift through all the things Afghanistan, and I'm, I'm a true fan of both their shows. I really encourage you to give them a listen. Now, we recognize this topic is timely and difficult to discuss for some, while the wound of war is still fresh, especially given the circumstances of the chaotic evacuation. Grant and I, alongside Panjway and Boardwalk, want you to know that our channels are open if you need someone to talk to. Also, if you need to, please consider calling the Veterans Crisis Line at one 800-273-8255. It is more than okay to not be okay, and we want you to be able to have someone to talk to. Please enjoy this important conversation. In my experience, conversations are best had with a glass of whiskey. Join me, Alan Kogan, as I engage in meaningful discussions while enjoying a glass of my favorite spirit. Welcome to the Kogan Conversation. Welcome the Panjoy podcast and Boardwalk podcast. I'm going to have you guys introduce yourselves uh, in no particular order. So I'll have Panjoy go first. So however, guys, you guys want to do it, uh, tee it up and introduce yourself, say something interesting about yourself and tell me about the podcast. My name is Curtis Grace. I am a co-host of the uh, the Panjoy podcast. The Panjoy podcast is an interview-based podcast talking to veterans of the war in Afghanistan who fought in the Panjoy district of Afghanistan, which is a district in the Kandahar province. And that's pretty much the gist of the Panjoy podcast. And Luke? <laughs> I am uh, Luke Coffey, and I am the really, really ridiculously good-looking face of the Panjoy podcast. And, uh, you know, yeah, as Curtis said, we're just interviewing veterans from all eras, all places, all armies, all things Panjoy. Very cool. All right. Boardwork, you're up. I'm Kyle Riddles, uh, co-host of the Boardwalk podcast, and I was a uh, army aviator, so did intelligence on board spy planes and then got out and did uh, green and white. So, Paul Mill analysis in southern Afghanistan, we founded the Boardwalk to kind of bring attention to uh, the war in Afghanistan and the abject failure of the whole thing. So um, ours takes a bit more of a, a, a much more political stance, I think, than, than Panjway does. But uh, we, we founded it to kind of bring attention to the war and we have interviews and, and guests all the time too. So it's a good time. We hope you guys take a listen. I'm Zach Pop, one of the founders of the Boardwalk podcast, I guess the co-founders. We, we originally had the idea to do a podcast on current events. And then we realized how much we were talking about Afghanistan without hitting the record button. So it's a weekly podcast where we kind of pick a topic related to the war in Afghanistan. And we, we talk around it. We talk through it. We'll have friends of ours on and the last couple episodes, people that only one of us may know. And yeah, it's a good conversation talking about America's longest war that nobody seems to 
realize was even going on half the time. Yep, and I'm I'm Stu. I'm a I'm a Sagittarius, I think, and I'm the third um, co-host of the Boardwalk podcast. Yeah, I uh, was an uh, all-source intel analyst in the army for a few years, and then got out and decided to keep making PowerPoints for the military. So contracted and uh met kyle and zach when we were contracting together in uh, kandahar real happy to be here awesome well I, I will say guys it's a it's an absolute privilege i, I wanted to i wanted to have both of you on because I, I listen to your podcast separately of course and uh i really appreciate both takes you guys have some expertise that obviously grant and i don't have and then of course we had this topic scheduled for a while and right before way before we even knew it was going to happen with afghanistan of course in, in in current affairs but then of course that shit show happened and uh i thought you know how great would it be to have some people on who can make more sense of it than we can and maybe bridge into a, a larger conversation about you know what our role is in the world that being said though the kogan conversation is about having these you know difficult or you know topical conversations while enjoying a beverage of our choice namely for us as whiskey and grant and i are enjoying something special because we're privileged to have you guys on here it's a it's a 19 year old ardbeg tragbon it's an expensive bottle um grant actually got it for me but uh we're sharing that today so we wanted to have this nice scotch with you guys so cheers and welcome cheers yeah. Cheers to that. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. So as a way to start, uh, and, and I'm sure any one of you can ha- can sound off on this, or maybe you can just interject when, when you want without trying to talk over each other with a recording, but let's, let's just start with Afghanistan. What what the hell happened? Where where, where are we right now? What, what are the little tiny things that led up to it? You know, where's your mindset? You know, how I know it's been a, about a month since it happened. What's, uh, what's the easiest way to distill this for the layman who, who might not know what's been going on? I think it's years and years of uh, people lying to better their record. Uh, it's it was always a failure, but it seems like people in high command would. So basically, the Pentagon acts as as a big you know gentleman's club, right? Like this this boys club, high high ranking. They say two stars make coffee in the Pentagon, you know, and it's like. And these are the people that are reporting on Afghanistan after they've served a tour in command over there, and nobody wants to go against the narrative that it's that it's failed. And so for basically 20 years, and what the Afghanistan papers showed when they were released too, is that for 20 years, um, we've known it was bad. Uh, at the ground level, intelligence reports were bad, and nobody seemed to report that to their superiors or at, or at, high, or at high enough levels to change it. So the course continued because people just kept the narrative going. Uh, no one wanted to break the narrative. And so 20 years later, it all falls apart. And people are asking, how did that happen? Well, we knew it was going to happen all along. It's just the people in charge of reporting that didn't seem to didn't seem to care. Yeah, I think the uh, key part of the descriptor that Kyle's offering is ground level. So I was listening to a couple episodes of the Boardwalk podcast, and then I was going back and uh, thinking about essentially the predictions that the Pantry podcast cranked out for how Afghanistan was going to pay out, you know, months beforehand. And it's remarkable to see how a bunch of former enlisted dudes who were just out there doing the job were able to figure shit out well before a higher commander or higher folks in the structure could. So that speaks to the kind of dichotomy of the lived in ground experience of actually doing the war and then the political gaming that was going on in the higher structures. So I may piggyback. Yeah, I think, uh, I was, I was coming up with a way to answer this question, right? I had a feeling that it would be coming up. And uh, I think the best way to answer it without being as cynical, however accurate as Kyle and Luke are, is that we, we fought a war, but we didn't provide the resources to win the war. And we didn't really try to win the war in general. 
And a lot of that was evident when you look at things like troop restrictions. You can't have troop restrictions if you're trying to win a war, especially a counterinsurgency with literally thousands of villages that need some sort of a presence, right? But at the same time, like to, to go back into what Kyle was saying, all these commanders and leaders kept getting promoted. There's a Duffel blog article that says, you know, the 17th commander for the 17th year in a row says we're making progress, yet we never made any progress. But they all got board seats. You know, they all got their third or fourth star. They're all doing well. Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Raytheon and North of Drummond are all doing well. But we just had another, was it 13 people die last month that should not have died? Because people who are in the positions to make those decisions that affect what happens on the battle space at that lower, at that team, company level, they didn't care because they're not down there in the thick of it, having to live with the ramifications for their actions. Yeah. And I, I, I think that, you know, when we initially went into Afghanistan, you know, we went in with all the best intentions. But for, for me, the biggest failure that allowed the war to continue for so long was a lack of planning. You have you have this big conflict that's kicked off by 9-11 and we go in there and our entire mission was to drive the Taliban out of Afghanistan. Well, you essentially do that in like 2002 and then you don't know what to do you know, now that you've taken over the country, you know, how do you prevent the Taliban from retaking everything and allowing AQ to essentially use Afghanistan as a uh, planning area for further attacks against the U.S. And so when it comes to that, it, you end up getting a lot of like like planning on the fly and different administrations having different ideas of what to do. You know, you have the, the Bush era where Afghanistan is essentially ignored and you kind of have a status quo. Well, meanwhile, Al-Qaeda is uh, gaining power in Iraq. And then when you get to the Obama era, um, Al-Qaeda essentially essentially takes all the lessons learned from Iraq, brings it to Afghanistan, and starts implementing uh, tactics and procedures like IEDs, which weren't seen in Afghanistan before Iraq, and uh, essentially rebuilding their power base. And so it definitely a, a lot of uh, a lot of fault falls on leadership for failing to plan, um, failing to execute said plans, and then trying to further their careers the entire time by pretending nothing's wrong when everyone below them is saying, hey, there's problems and we need to address them. Yeah. That, that, and that's a good point. The last thing you just said, and I was going to ask, is it is this just squarely because they want to further their careers? Is it clout? Is it arrogance? Is it power? Is it money? Is it is it a combination of all the things? Because I, I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, if you're in the military and you're obviously you're trying to promote service of country and of, of nation and trying to help people out ideally, right? That's the idealistic view of, of what we're supposed to be doing. What's the motivation to further your career just because you get a defense contract and lobbying kickback from Congress? Have you seen the Pentagon Wars. <laughs> That's based off a true story. It is It is one of those things like when people enter politics, right? I have no doubt that the majority of people that enter politics do it with all of the best best of intentions. And I think when we look at our, our military leadership, you know, again, going starting as a second lieutenant platoon leader, I have no doubt they have the best of intentions. But at some point, you know, we all regress to the mean, right? And the mean is you will ultimately get in line with the status quo. And the status quo is you get to a certain point where it's more about the next promotion than it is the soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines below you. 
for at least too many. Obviously, not all of them, but at least too many of them. So yeah, I, I would say that that is a that is a pervasive issue that is festered throughout all the branches of the military because we see it in all the branches of the military. We see it in, in various forms. And the, the four of us being a former uh, army certainly saw it in, in our own particular way, right? It's not going to go away. Yeah, yeah. And on top of that, with the with the mention of the Pentagon Wars, which is an outstanding film that I recommend to anybody, there, there's essentially like insider lobbyists at the Pentagon who are looking towards the end of their careers and that uh, that shiny um, board seat on Raytheon or, or what have you. And there's a, there's so much money that goes into armed conflict. I mean, I think we just got the number back last week and it was something like $14 trillion spent on Afghanistan over 20 years. I mean, there, you know, people, people do much less for, for, for much less. And so, so you definitely have operators within the Pentagon who are like, well, I'm going to be retiring in a few years. Raytheon has this great new product that, or, or whoever that uh, needs to go through. You know, if I help them out, they'll help me out. And 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 like Zach said as well, there's there, there is there is the the clout. You 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 never in in a military career, if you want to, the further you go up, especially the officer chain, the more political it gets, and having any sort of like failure on your record will definitely hinder your career. Uh, so I think one thing that's kind of important about this whole discussion is that it's it's really less of a military failure than it is really a political failure. So when you when you gave the the, the military clear guidelines and clear clear objectives, they're extremely effective at doing it. Kill that guy, take this ground, seize this objective. We rock at that. But when you said, hey, defeat an idea and oh, and we're not going to give you the, the tools to do it. We want you to defeat an idea, but we want you to do it without killing innocent people. You want you to do it without destroying infrastructure, without taking down buildings and without making the news, you're, you're starting to drift into a realm that the military really isn't designed for. Maybe that's a whole other discussion on the civilian oversight of the military, but uh, that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, we stopped trying to kill the Taliban in like 2012, really. And since then, we've been trying to build up the ANA and we can only do so much. What we saw in the, the last year or so is that the ANA didn't have food, they didn't have water, they didn't have fuel, they didn't have ammo. Like this is something I know on the boardwalk, these guys talked about this. This is this wasn't new. We knew that they didn't have the resources. Like that's how I knew that Panjoy was going to fall like that. Kandahar was going to fall like that. They didn't have the stuff to fight with. I think the surprise was that that logistical situation was so severe that it cascaded all the way up to them just giving up on Kabul. But you know, the ANA not having the logistics necessary to make it to winter is probably why it collapsed so fast. So and there's also an, an underlying theme to all of these contributions, which is there's an experiential interaction with Afghanistan and there's a theoretical interaction with Afghanistan. And uh, the experience of Afghanistan and the theory of Afghanistan differ greatly in that when you're on the ground or you're out there actually ingesting this information or ingesting the, the space or you're, you're fighting in a space, your experience of that differs so much more from the actual play that is going on in terms of how Afghanistan has been utilized on a scale that extends well beyond the country itself. So... Thank you.
Every month, Grant and I will tackle an important topic while enjoying a glass of whiskey. If you don't agree with our opinions on these issues, that's great. We want to hear from you and hear your side of the story. Our goal is to understand different perspectives and engage in conversations that matter without regressing to the same division that exists in our hyperpartisan politics. We can and must do better in finding common ground. Discussions breed solutions. The Kogan Conversation is a podcast that welcomes respectful discourse, paired with a glass of whiskey, of course. If you'd like to offer your take on an upcoming episode or join us for a glass of whiskey, please reach out to us on social media or head over to our website and send us a message. The fall of Afghanistan happened quicker than almost anyone expected. Passport office is overwhelmed, visa agencies are overwhelmed, and so are embassies. Ultimately, they lost confidence, political, military confidence. Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. An estimated 47,000 Afghan civilians died during the last 20 years of conflict. The U.S. lost 2,325 service members in Afghanistan, and more than 20,000 were wounded. Afghanistan's former government lost over 66,000 members of the army and police during the course of the war. In total, the United States has spent about $2.26 trillion on the war in Afghanistan. But before the final withdrawal could occur, the Taliban made rapid gains across the country. Considering we went to Afghanistan to oust the, the, the Taliban in 2001, to give it to them back on a silver platter, basically, with no resistance, no fighting, is where that sense of abandonment and betrayal actually comes from. I lost friends there. It's hard to understand what it was for. If this is how it ends, how do you tell veterans that it was worth it? Why did we spend the past decade there? What what was the purpose? What was the goal? Given all this complexity surrounding the issue of Afghanistan, whether it be the political failures that exist at it, or even our civilians in this nation, or even the world's misunderstanding of, of the region, and just the Middle East quagmire as, as a whole. It's never been tamed, right? It's the, it's the graveyard of a thousand empires. Was there a better way to do this? You know, 20 years, of course, of lies and, and issues and failures, and now we're going to pull out. Okay, most people agreed that we should probably not be there anymore. Maybe we should, you know, try to fix fix this. But obviously, the massive criticism right now is that it was it, we we ripped the rug out from underneath the ANA. We left Bagram, Bagram's airport. We didn't do this strategically. We didn't listen to our, our top military advisors, or those top advisors had, didn't have the best interests of Afghanistan at heart. What, what's the what's the play? So I mean, like you said, no one wants to stay forever, right? I mean, that's you can make the argument that we stayed forever in Germany and Japan, but the the reality is it's it's a different world right now. I think the the main criticism is is more that we didn't ease into it so you know we said we're going to be out by september 11th 2021 but instead of slowly degrading across that time and ensuring that at every point in the timeline we had the capability to get our personnel out to get the interpreters out to get the embassy staff out on like july 3rd we pulled out of Bagram. We pulled 90% of our forces out of the country overnight and left 600 people at KB at HK, HKIA as a contingency, but there was nothing. Um, whereas what we should have done is we should have kept, clearly we had the capability to remove 6,000 troops in 24 hours. We did it. So we should have kept max capacity up until the last minute to ensure security, make sure those flights go out in an orderly fashion. That's probably the way that should have gone. Yeah. And the fact that the troops weren't the last ones out of there is absolutely blows my mind. What an absolute failure. It is my job as a soldier not to protect and serve the American people. Why in the world are there still Americans in Afghanistan when we had soldiers there to protect them and get them out? I mean, just a, a total failure. Absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah, I understand somewhat the thought process. Like, uh, Resolute Support Mission Command was in Kabul, and Kabul is the capital of Afghanistan. But I mean, Bagram's like a thirty-minute drive away. Like, we and and there's an airport in Kabul. We could have easily transitioned that group over to Bagram, where we have we would have had a much easier time getting people onto the airfield because the base surrounds the airfield. We 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 basically shot ourselves in the foot logistically there with. Hey, hey, you know, we're 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 gonna trust the Taliban to, you know, essentially play ball with us and allow people to get out. And we we saw just what happened there. They were blocking streets and they were shooting in the air when people tried to get over to the airport. The extreme trust that this administration and uh, Trump's administration seemed to put in the Taliban to work with us is just baffling to me. I mean, Trump's deal that he he oversaw with them was essentially going to use the Taliban as like a counterterrorism group in Afghanistan to help keep Al-Qaeda um, out of there. Well, Al-Qaeda has been like their biggest ally for 20, 30 years at this point. And so there, there was no reason to suspect that they would turn on them at their moment of victory. Yeah, and, and back to your original question of like what it would have taken. Honestly, I think what it would have taken, it was generations of American presence as strong as it was in from 2009 to 2012, 13. Like you needed that many troops in the country for that long a period of time. And it would have taken 70, 80, 100 years because you would have had to essentially rewire an entire country from the ground up. And even then at the back end of great grandchildren fighting in Afghanistan, you would have had the outliers out in the boonies that would have been acting against a centralized form of power. So I think um, look, looking at what it would take, like Luke's talking about, if you don't want to do it in 70 or 80 years, which is understandable, right? The other option is about a million pairs of boots on the ground. That That is ultimately the other option because, and, and the great thing about that question, Alan, is you're like, well, how do we, where do we go wrong? Well, are you talking about the counterterrorism mission or the, or the coin mission, right? Because one was actually a pretty resounding success for a very long period of time. And then we we started to turn away from that, right? And so we we moved into this coin venture. And, and that's kind of where, where Luke and I are talking about when we had that, what was it, 100,000 pairs of boots on the ground. Like, that's great and all, but Afghanistan is 30 million people. It's 75% rural. You've got to get people out there in the sticks because when you're looking at the counterinsurgency, that that you know clear, secure, build strategy, you, you can't do it with 100,000 people because half of those aren't combat arms who are going to be going out into the villages, interacting with the elders like Luke and Curtis were doing. Half of those people are going to be people like me, Stu and Kyle, who are, you know, trying to provide the best intel as possible. You have, you know, your supply clerks, like, you know, all the functions of an army. So at minimum, I think if you wanted to do this in the same period of time that we spent, you would have had to have had 40, 50, 60 soldiers for every village in Afghanistan. And you'd have to keep rotating out longer deployments so you could have more more familiarity and in similar interactions with elders and and the locals just growing up in the areas and there's you can't find a single american who would have been on board with that understandably if if we had unlimited money or we weren't too concerned about 
you know, shifting our priorities in the military for, you know, would it would it be just supremely funding a civil affairs wing that just is focused on restructuring the culture? Because I I go back to the war on terror. I mean, that that alone is you're not you're not fighting a black and white war. You're fighting a war that's so it's an ideology. It's it's people who are rooted in in rural areas that have these views of the world or these these extremist views of the Quran and Islam that how do you defeat that? It's, they're they're very charismatic too, and they they're, they're they prey on people who don't have anything, don't have any money, don't have any food, and they're you know be part of this brotherhood and do these things. And look at the West; they have all this all these resources, and they should be helping us, but they're not, and they suck. You know, nine eleven didn't happen out of thin air. I mean, I think the thing is there, there's a third option we haven't talked about yet is that there was there was the one option which is what we did, which failed. There was the other option which was flood the the country with troops and beat it into submission. You know, for a forty year war, the Soviets tried and they failed. Yeah, but the third <laughs> option was. To support it in the best way that we could when we had the upper hand, which was to allow the the unique ethnic and tribal groups of that country to regulate themselves. Trying to form Afghanistan into a central government was a failed concept from the start. You are not going to get the Uzbeks and the Tajiks and the Pashto to work together because if there's a Pashto president, everyone else is pissed. If there's a Tajik president, everybody else is pissed. You can't have you can't run a government like that in Afghanistan. If you really want to go back to what could have worked, what could have worked would have been to allow the Northern Alliance to remain intact. Allow the Pashto tribes to have their own government, have some more of a conglomerate government instead of something with a single figurehead. I'm not going to pretend to know exactly what that looks like, but what I do know is that when you try to, to rule Afghanistan as a central government, it's never worked. Like a literal confederation of tribes. Yeah, yeah, or or you know some kind of decentralized republic. I mean, I think I think a big issue that we ran into is that early on in the war, we sort of picked and chose the warlords that we liked or were at least like palatable enough to us, and then we killed all the rest of them or, or most of them. And then there was a huge power vacuum that the Taliban slowly filled over, you know, 18 years that they've <laughs> they've managed to maintain. I mean, the Taliban were always going to maintain control over the rural areas after we got rid of, you know, whoever the, the local bandit chief was, <laughs> essentially. And, and the question is, though, is is that the role of the United States military? And, and the answer is, like like Luke talked about at the beginning, is no. I mean, the American military is good at, like he said, t- killing people and taking ground, right? And at the end of the day, it's like me and Stu and Zach may be able to pinpoint intelligence and then uh, Luke and Curtis may be able to go out and shoot them. But at the end of the day, man, it's like, that's what we do. We're the US Army. We don't build Afghanistan. We are not responsible for creating a country or forming a government or doing any of that. And it's like, and that was all handed to you. And there was no way you could win. That there was absolutely, it was a losing game from the start. And once you stopped, once you stopped killing terrorists and you moved to building a nation. And the State Department holds a lot of responsibility for that as well. You know, they they failed to, to learn the lessons that, you know, the CIA learned really early on. And when they supported this Northern Alliance, you know, rebellion from the North, you know, they were screaming at the State Department. And you can't, you cannot put a Pashto president, you can't put a Pashto president, and you're going to lose these guys. What did they do? They put Karzai in and it was a huge disaster. You know, they did the same thing in Iraq when they dismanded the, the Iraqi army, like three weeks into the war, they they created an insurgency of people that were perfectly willing to work for a central government. So the state. 
State Department is trying to create American democracy abroad without any consideration for what might actually work in that country. And you're right, it's not the American military's job, dude. That's the State Department's job. You know, the war in Afghanistan is the State Department's failure, it's not the military's failure. After three failed wars, you know, with, with Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, are you know, are we are we going to learn that the like hearts and minds aspect shouldn't be thrust, you know, solely on the military? <laughs> like they 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 aren't they aren't equipped to properly deal with that and it's not it's not their fault they're, they're really good at their at, at their specific job that they train for and trying to you know add add on like like term terms of war and you know how how to effectively like get the locals to like you while fighting the enemy especially when the enemy looks just like the locals is you know almost impossible and i think another important consideration is the post 9-11 rush to avenge like we, we didn't i mean most americans to include the civilians that would eventually come to run the thing that was going on uh and most military people they couldn't have picked afghanistan out on a map i mean i, I remember um when when 9-11 happened and i was in the seventh grade i think which is crazy to think that you got you know a generation of folks fighting a war in a place that they didn't really even understand they were too young to even understand it but there was a rush to exact revenge and so we were in a rush to invade a country that we knew nothing about so we, we invaded an entire country that militarily, you know, the CIA might have had a, a hint what was going on, and and some uh, some thinkers might have had a hint as to what was going on. But militarily, we only knew to invade it, and we didn't know the complexity that was Afghanistan. You know, there, there was no time to learn it, and it took 20 years to learn Afghanistan. And by the time we learned it, it was done for us. Wouldn't it be nice to know what topics are coming up and when an episode is releasing from the Kogan Conversation? Subscribing to our podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, following us on Spotify, and of course following us on social media helps immensely. You can also head over to our website and sign up for our email list so you never miss out on any episodes or information. Cheers. So many days since you went away, I always thought of you. Each night and day This podcast is a work of passion and it's completely self-funded. We want to continue providing this platform dedicated to free thought and conversation, but we kindly ask that you show your support. Patreon isn't just a platform where you can give a small monthly donation. It also gives you exclusive access to extended, unedited episodes, bonus content, as well as creative input into whatever we cover. Being a supporter on Patreon makes you a member of the Kogan Conversation family and helps us continue this passion project. For just a few bucks a month, you can help us grow. The more we grow, the more perks can come to being a supporter on Patreon. Head over to our website and learn how you can sign up. Well, I, 20 years later, what did we learn? Is there what's the takeaway? First of all, I guess let's let's go back first. Is is was it 100% a failure? Was it was was there a thing that we learned from Afghanistan or did we were there some success stories that we should highlight? I think we learned how effective UAVs can be. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I think that uh, the the end lesson, the lesson is that we we don't go in and and build a country up from scratch basically. I think that's the lesson, but we should have learned that a long time ago. We should have learned it from the Soviets and we didn't. So we'll continue to do it, I'm sure. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think in in like sort of uh, sort of declawing um, terror groups, the the success is the fact that they're they're largely local as as opposed to uh, you know transnational. And even even though Al Qaeda has has control in several different countries, they're not able to mobilize that to attack us or our allies in other countries in general. Yeah, and when we when we fully committed our resources, we were pretty good at killing terrorists. Like I was in the ISIS fight in Nangahar. We were very good at killing terrorists, but that's because we chose to. We relaxed the ROE. We created a new set of ROE to go after and kill ISIS that didn't apply to the Taliban, which is an interesting discussion. But when we set our mind to it, we we're very good at killing terrorists. I mean, I think uh, if there's, in my opinion, if there's a if there's a win to take away from Afghanistan, is that we probably have the most professional, experienced military in modern history and you've you got a military that can expertly execute missions anywhere in the globe in a matter of hours the fall of kabul <laughs> crazily enough has proven that but um you know you've got this professional military that is so finely honed through 20 years of war think about the military pre 9-11 it was a joke really i mean it was like it was a gutted organization that was trickling funding into it and and they were just still running off of post-world war ii ways of doing things you know of course that's come at the cost of trillions of dollars millions of lives affected and 20 years wasted in a country that as we've you know originally set out on here could not be rebuilt could not be fixed essentially not in our image at least so win lose well i mean now so the taliban i i, I don't want to say back is they, they've always been there but they're back in a larger force they're, they're with a little i would say maybe confidence which is probably pretty important when it comes to warfare but are they are they more organized now than ever are they are they more dangerous because of that and do you, do you foresee a future where the world not just the united states is going to try to now negotiate and and recognize them to try to make some and save some face with afghanistan as it is well they're certainly more organized I mean, if you look at where they were two years ago and where they are now, and you can't ignore the fact that we stopped bombing them since February of last year. So they've had, you know, 18 months to organize with their Pakistani friends, you know, and to build a much more structured organization that really didn't exist, at least when Luke and I were fighting them in 2012. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they, they are, you know, the, the official rulers of Afghanistan at this point. And I think you can you can tell from the way they've been presenting themselves. Um, they're certainly showing a softer face to media, to, to international media, and trying to establish themselves as like players in world politics. I, I, I I think that that's the that's the only reason that they've like allowed you know like women's protest marches to occur and in Kabul and things like that. But like overall throughout the country, I mean, you'll I think we'll start to see like the decentralized nature of the tab- Taliban kind of come forth because if you're if you're a female in some rural village in Helmand and you try to uh, to conduct some kind of protest march against uh, the hijab or or what, what, the the niqab, I think they're having to wear they they downgraded from the hijab which yeah there you go but uh it's it's not going to go too well for you so i think they'll probably rule afghanistan similarly to how they ruled in the 90s maybe not quite as brutal but 
they're you know there's there's no force to stop them at this point um as far as like danger to the u.s i I don't really see much of a danger from the taliban themselves towards the u.s the danger was always even during the war was always that al-qaeda would be able to stay there and grow their numbers and plan further attacks against the u.s which i mean i i don't know what we can really do to counter that outside of you know the cia doing what they do but those attacks require funding you know and at the end of the day, it's like Taliban. I mean, we funded the entire country of Afghanistan. If anybody has any doubts about that, your tax dollars basically created the ANA. You know, you saw how great it was, you know? And and so, I don't know where the Taliban are going to get their money. So, it's, it's you know, and I don't, Al-Qaeda needs financiers if they're going to carry out terror attacks. And it ain't coming from the Taliban because I don't Unless it's from the opium trade or whatever. I don't know where the Taliban's getting the money, but uh, it'll probably come from other nation states uh, that we have, you know, good relationships with. I'm sure they'll they'll come up. Uh, Taliban did counter the the narcotics cultivation when they ruled in the 90s. So it'd be interesting to see if they stopped it now. But they've they've been heavily reliant on on those funds for the past 20 years. So I I, kind of doubt it. Yeah, but that could change with legitimacy, right? Because we've already seen that like Qatar has sent political leadership to Kabul to meet with the the new Taliban government, which if, if you've been following the war, like the five of us have, that shouldn't surprise you at all. Like Kyle was saying, like the, the Gulf states, they are heavily invested in all things Islam, whether it's just moderate Islam or in many cases, extremist Islam. So I, I think what you are going to see, like Stu said, you will see, a, at least in the immediacy, a, a kinder, gentler Taliban. But we've seen they've pretty much gone back to almost all of their original policies regarding sports and music and movies. And they, really, the biggest change is education for now in the urban areas. Because at the same time that they're saying that women can go to schools in Kabul and Masri Sharif and Herat, there's reports in Ghazni where that's not happening. There's reports in Northern Helmand where that's not happening, right? So it is a it is certainly a face for the world to see for now that'll ultimately change and regarding how they'll get their money because if if they're going to be true to Mullah Omar's and uh, his vision with getting rid of you know profiting off the opium trade, then they 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 will try to at least in, in some way get rid of that. But like Stu said, it's a decentralized organization. Even as a political entity, it'll be highly decentralized, and you'll get some guy in Helmut who knows how much money he can make by running narcotics to Iran. But you can look at a country like China, who has heavily they're highly interested in the minerals that Afghanistan has, as is Russia, as is Iran, as obviously Pakistan. Right? Pakistan has spent the last twenty years working with the Taliban. And this is purely what I'm assuming as an analyst. They've spent the last 20 years working with the Taliban to help them better run a country. So they're, they're, they may not run it any better, but in theory, they should be better prepared to at least try. Yeah, Pakistan's certainly going to reap the benefits of the NDS potentially not funding the uh, the Tariqi Taliban pa- Pakistan group, which you know might might kind of go along with their uh, nurturing of the Taliban and allowing them to operate in the in the uh, federally administered tribal areas on Pakistan's western border with Afghanistan. But yeah, yeah, definitely the uh, the minerals that 
China has sort of been thirsting after for several years, and I'm, I'm sure they've they've made uh, deals on the side with them as well. I mean, there's there's a ton of lithium. I think I think Trump was uh, talking about the the lithium reserves in Afghanistan. There's billions of dollars worth of lithium there. So that's a that's another route they could go with their legitimacy. And I would also say with 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 the Haqqani network in the highest levels of government, the Haqqanis are not as ideological as the rest of the Taliban. They have no trouble running guns and drugs and you know human trafficking. They will bring money to the Taliban through all those ways, and they are not going to care about Malomar's original vision. You know they will continue to do what they've been doing for 30 years. So I would say I'd say the heroin is definitely still going to be a huge part of their their income. They're not going to shy away. They may shy away from it publicly, but it's still going to be a huge part of their their balance sheet. Can you do a, just a quick layman's? Uh, definition or explain the Haqqani network for us? Jaluddin Haqqani was one of the many warlords um, who survived the uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. We actually uh, worked worked with him a bit. He mainly operated in what we call the P2K region of Afghanistan, which is Paktia, Paktika, and Coast, which is uh, which all lies south of uh, the capital Kabul. And essentially, when the Taliban started gaining power and started surging um, out of the south and towards Kabul, they went through um, Jaluddin Haqqani's area and he pledged allegiance to Mullah Omar. After that, they continued working with them over the last 20, 25 years. Um, they typically, the Haqqani fighters in the area were better trained and better armed than your normal Taliban guy. However, because they pledged allegiance to the Taliban, oftentimes when we'd roll up a Haqqani guy, he'd say he's a Taliban because they're that interlocked. Back when Mullah Omar died and the news that he died came out in 2015, early 2016, um, Sirajuddin Haqqani, who is Jaluddin's son, emerged and became the number two in the entirety of the Taliban. And and he's the uh, minister, minister of interior? Yes, he inherited his dad's old position because nepotism is alive and well in Afghanistan. In, in a Star Wars reference, it's like, you know, Jabba the Hutt, how he kind of works for the Empire, right? And, and Al aligns himself with the Empire and he's a bad guy. But he has like his own like, you know, smuggler cartel kind of thing going on. That's like analogy. That's, that's the not, best that's way to describe it. are like the Hutt cartel. They, they're yes. aligned with the Empire, but they have their own thing going too. Thank you for joining us for this important topic, but more importantly, thank you to the Panjway and Boardwalk podcast for being part of this. We wanted to have on those who are well-versed in this discussion and get perspectives from those who served. This concludes part one of this discussion, but the rest of the conversation will be available in part two on October 25th. Please feel free to reach out to us with any feedback or thoughts you have for the show. Cheers. I'm Alan. And I'm Grant. Thank you for listening to The Kogan Conversation. This podcast is about engaging with different perspectives, values, and ideas. We want to learn how to progress conversations on important topics without assuming the worst in each other. Each month, we will tackle a new topic while enjoying a glass of our favorite spirit and shed light on the beauty of good conversation. Until next time. Cheers.